The role of Byzantium in European history has been systematically underplayed for a long time. So I'm really pleased to be joined today by Kore Durak, Associate Professor at Boazici University in Istanbul. Kore specialises in Byzantine-Islamic relations, and he's written about prisoners of war, the trade and rare medical ingredients and geographical knowledge, um, as well as a new article on the commercial role of Trebizond as a hub on the Black Sea, just published in the Mediterranean Historical Review. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Hello, Charles. Very happy to be here. Um, let me begin um, with a big question, Corey. The 11th century and, and Byzantium. A lot is happening here. What, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, thank you for the question. You know, the Byzantine Empire had a long history, 1100 years of history. So 11th century is one of those 11th centuries. Uh, but quite an eventful century. So you're right in cho- choosing the 11th century as a turning point for Byzantium too. So speaking of the Byzantine Empire, maybe we should just explain to our listeners that it wasn't called a Byzantine Empire, neither by its neighbors nor by themselves. And the empire was called the Roman Empire, Politia Romeum. So maybe we should just set it right in the beginning. So we are talking about a largely Christian but in an orthodox Christian manner, Christian empire, and largely, predominantly Greek-speaking. So it is sometimes called, as you know, the Eastern Roman Empire, although, again, it's a misnomer because the Byzantines themselves didn't call themselves Eastern Romans either. They just called themselves Roman until 1453, when the empire was captured, the capital was captured by the Ottoman Turks. So uh, if we have, traditionally, if we have to define the Byzantine Empire, we can speak about the three legs that define the empire. It's Romanness, it's Christianness, and it's Greekness in culture. So uh, having said this, uh, if we move on with the 11th century, uh, then we have to talk about a famous dynasty called Macedonian dynasty, because the Macedonian dynasty ruled the Byzantine Empire from the mid-9th down to the mid-11th century. So talking about the Macedonians and the most famous emperor of the Macedonian dynasty, Basil II, can give us quite a good background to start our discussion of the 11th century. So the Macedonian period, which is like from the 9th to until the mid-11th century, was seen or still is seen as an age of recovery and consolidation which means that before the Macedonians in the 7th and 8th centuries, the Byzantine Empire in the early Middle Ages was going through quite a difficult time politically, economically, and socially, because uh, the end of the late Antic period corresponds to the 7th uh, and to some extent 8th centuries, and there were so many plagues, effects or after effects of the Justinianic plague, Uh, and attacks from the neighbors and enemies from the north and from the south. Therefore, 7th and 8th centuries was a period of survival. So uh, against this background, the Macedonian dynastic period from the mid-9th century onwards was really an age of recovery in population, uh, in territory, and an age of consolidation in economy and administration. So... We see almost a second golden age, first golden age being the Justinianic period in the 6th century. So we see a second golden age at the time of Basil II. This emperor who died in 1025 uh, was, as I said, the most famous emperor of this large centralized empire. And by talking about his international policies, 
uh, and ex military expeditions, I will be giving now in the coming minutes the, the, the international picture of the Eastern Mediterranean and Eurasia, because Basil II was a great quote-unquote conqueror. Uh, and so he, first of all, for example, defeated the Bulgars. So the Bulgars or the Bulgarians had already established uh, a strong, uh, a threatening state very close to Constantinople in the southern Balkans, in roughly today's modern Bulgaria. So uh, Basil II, at, in the beginning of the 11th century, that is to say in 1014, defeated the Bulgarian king Samuel, and the whole land was incorporated financially and militarily. Uh, so the, there was already, in the beginning of the 11th century, a Byzantine dominion over the, the central and eastern Balkans. Croatia and Serbia also became dependencies under the reign of Basil II. So in a sense, most of the Balkans was recaptured by the Byzantines by the 11th century. If we turn our faces to the north, again, in, during the Macedonian period, and there was the control of Crimea, Kharsonis, uh, uh, and Crimea was an important outpost because it was a, a watchpoint against the Khazars in North Caspian Sea region and against the Rus. So the Rus, which we translate today as the Rus or Russian people, as you know, were early Scandinavians in the beginning of their history and uh, mixed with the, uh, the local Slavic speaking populations became the Rus and later Russians of the later Middle Ages, situated around Kiev and today's Ukraine. And the Byzantines had uh, both friendly and inimical relations with the Rus, because uh, Russians or Rus were trading with the Byzantines, but also they were raiding Byzantine territories in northern uh, Asia Minor, like the Black Sea coast. But at the same time, in 988, the Rus converted under the reign of, in the, in the example of the uh, ruler, their ruler, Vladimir, the Rus converted to Orthodox Christianity in 988, being dependent on the Constantinopolitan Church. So if we turn our faces to another important uh, scene, the Caucasus, Caucasia. As you know, Caucasia was always a battleground throughout the history, battleground between two superpowers. In the late Antique period, the Romans uh, and the Sasanians, or late Romans and Sasanians, and in the early Middle Ages, Byzantines and the Muslims, more specifically Umayyads and Abbasids. So Southern Caucasus, there is an interesting description of the multicultural nature of the Caucasus. For example, Plutarch claims that Pompey, the Roman uh, general, needed 120 interpreters in his Caucasian campaign. So the, 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 likewise, in later centuries, Islamic geographers also talk about the multiplicity of the languages in central, northern, and southern Caucasians, and they call this area mountain of languages. So as these examples show, there were so many ethnic groups occupying this area, but dominantly by the 9th and 10th centuries, there were the Armenians and the Georgians. It's very difficult to distinguish between the elite of the Georgians and Armenians, but by the 9th and 10th centuries, when the Abbasids in the south were in decline, and when the Byzantines had not penetrated eastern Anatolia and the Caucasia yet, the uh, Caucasian people, and especially Armenians, 
had a kind of a, like a renaissance politically, culturally, and they established a number of principalities, Armenian principalities and Georgian principalities by the 9th and 10th centuries under a number of families like Bagratuni and Artsuni. So Basil II also started expanding towards these areas and one by one he incorporated these small Georgian and Armenian principalities. Uh, so by the beginning of the 11th century, Caucasia was also a Byzantine back garden as well, uh, against the receding tide and power of the Abbasids, declining power of the Abbasids. So Basil is really going off in all directions then. He's kind of expanding yes, in the Balkans and in the Caucasus at the same time. Yes, definitely. And also like in every direction, in, towards Italy too, but I don't have time to talk about Europe. So finally turning our face to the south, the richest, the most populous neighbors, the Islamic Near East. The Near Islamic Near East was fragmented after the Abbasid decline in the mid-10th century. So in the later 10th and 11th centuries, you have the Shiite Fatimids who established their dynasty in North Africa, and especially Egypt, and continued running this part of the world until the late and the Fatimids became an important player for Byzantines, especially in Sicily. So they confronted the Byzantines in Sicily and northern Syria, as well as in the Mediterranean Sea around Cyprus and uh, Crete. But they also had a lot of diplomatic and commercial contacts with the Byzantines. So next to North Africa, we also, we also have in the fragmented territories of the Abbasids, Hamdanids, Another Shiite Arab dynasty, centered in Aleppo, today's modern Syria. They also, the Hamdanids also were kind of guarding Syria against Basil's forces, uh, also uh, acting as in-betweeners for trade and diplomacy in the Byzantium. And finally, not to complicate things more, there were the Buyids or Buwayhis, another Shiite dynasty, but not this time Arab, from Iran, and they were ruling over Iraq and Iran, again, around the 10th and 11th centuries. So in sort of Abbasids, you have three major players, all Shiite minority elite, Buyids in Iraq and Hamdanids in Syria and Fatimids in Egypt, although there were many other you know, uh, Islamic dynasties or states which don't concern us at this point. So as it is clear by now, and the Byzantine Empire was an international power, and I cannot find any alternative power that would stand against Byzantine military might, but not only military might, but against its centralized huge bureaucracy. So the administration was based on a vast and centralized bureaucracy by the 11th century. An army of officials, army of civilian officials, if I may with allegiance to the capital city, uh, and with a certain type of culture, kind of like a officer's culture, all the way from the Western Balkans to Armenia, these officers, civilian or military, these bureaucrats, shared a common culture and a common allegiance towards Constantinople and the emperor, collecting taxes, uh, taking care of the judicial business against a centralized judicial system, a centralized tax collection system, and to some extent, centralized military systems, which is very different from what was happening in Western Europe. But if we focus on the society, 
which is necessary because the changes in the society and the classes, social classes, resulted in the changes of the uh, state system, administrative system in the 11th and 12th centuries. Uh, speaking of the social classes, in the Macedonian period, the middle class or poor peasants formed the backbone of the system because these middle class or poorer uh, civilians, uh, peasants or peasant families, provided the taxes to the state. And some of these peasants were declared to be soldier peasants. Uh, so in the end, in the Macedonian period, the army was based on the contributions by the peasant soldiers who were not mobile, but settled in their own territories, acting like a militia who didn't have too many taxes to the state, but in instead provided their military service to the state. So uh, we can make a distinction between the civilian peasants who were paying taxes to the state and military peasants, or soldier peasants, who were paying fewer taxes, but giving their service for the defense of the land. And all in individual regions were formed into military sections called thema in Greek, or theme system. And of course, these themas were controlled by the soldiers and generals sent from Constantinople. So this is, again, not a decentralized system. It's the centralized system, a people's army, a peasant army, but totally controlled by the center. Uh, and the peasants were given land by the state. And if the soldier peasants did not serve in the army properly, the land given to them temporarily would be taken from their hands to be given to another fam peasant family so that this peasant family can provide one soldier, like the father or the son of the family, to fight for the thematic army in the provinces. It's still a very state-controlled... All about Constantinople. Yes, definitely. A, a working system where provinces are tied to Constantinople uh, and a lot of bureaucracy involved uh, in the provinces. But against this, there was a new tide because by the 10th and early 11th century, we see the rise of a new class, which we can call as wealthy landowners, in Greek, they call them dinatoi, or the, the powerful in English. So the powerful were comprised of the high officials of the army in the provinces, bureaucrats in the provinces, senators, bishops in the provinces, and monastic foundations. So this is the rich, the powerful in the provinces who worked with the state and who, of course, who benefited from their connections with the state and who collected a lot of wealth surplus in their pockets. And they turned this money in their pockets into land ownership. They start buying land from the poorer or middle-class civilian peasants. As the central administration realized what was happening, in the 10th century, the emperors, including Basil II, started stopping this process by uh, not allowing the powerful to buy the land of the peasants. So this continued like that for 50 years or so, but by the, in the beginning of the 11th century, this stopped. The state stopped protecting its power base, that is to say, civilian peasants. 
So now the lands, the lands uh, fields of civilian peasants were started to be bought by the powerful, and these peasants were slowly becoming tenants in their previous lands for their new landlords called the rich, the powerful, or the dinatoi. I'm guessing this is going to be a problem, Corey, for taxes. Definitely, because in later centuries, the powerful uh, who are who are supposed to send their taxes to the center will start receiving privileges about not sending taxes for a short time or for midterm or forever. But this is not an issue for 10th or 11th centuries. This will be an issue in the 13th and 14th centuries. At the same time, the thematic army system was also declining because the militia-type peasant soldiers were less professional, more static, and more on the defense rather than on the offense. But as I told you, under Basil II and later when the empire was expanding, they needed stronger, richer soldiers who would not be like a militia in the countryside, but who would have good capacity for being on the offensive. So the Byzantine state in the late 10th and early 11th century also started transforming its army from a peasant-based thematic army to a professional army. And in the 11th century, there was a lot of chaos or mismanagement because the next system to be established was not yet there, but the previous defensive system was also gone. So by the mid-11th century, you only have mercenaries. It's not, not, nothing negative about mercenaries as long as you can pay them. But most of the Byzantine army was now composed of professional soldiers, native or foreign, paid by the state, almost like mercenaries, fighting against the enemies. So this is a period of expansion. But at the same time, the administration is in a process of change and the army is in a process of change. So when we enter the 11th century, uh, we have a number of uh, developments that created a lot of catastrophes, as I will tell you now. So the Macedonian dynasty ended with its final representative, actually two women, female princesses, the uh, nieces of Basil II. Zoe and Theodora. Zoe and Theodora, <laughs> definitely, yeah, the daughters of Constantine VIII. Uh, and the uh, Macedonian dynasty kind of continued with the men whom these ladies married until the mid-11th century. But in the mid-11th century, we start the signs of a confrontation within the society, Byzantine society and the state. On the one hand, there is the civilian elite in the capital. By civilian elite, I mean top officials situated in Constantinople against the provincial military elite, uh, who were composed of mostly provincial governors, provincial thematic generals, provincial rich families who were sending soldiers in the provinces to the army. So although it is not this black and white, there, was, there were two cliques in 11th century Byzantine society, upper level society and administration. The civilian elite, who are more interested in the financial income and less inclined towards expansion and military expenditure versus the military elite who were strong in the provinces, especially Anatolian provinces, who were very fond of their noble past, family lineage, 
and who were keen on spending more money on the army, so therefore more into military expansion or defenses. So actually, Byzantium witnessed the struggle for the throne between these two cliques. So I'm not going to go into detail, but some emperors like Isaac Komnenos in 1050s was a representative of the provincial military elite, while the emperors from the Dukas family in 1060s were more inclined towards the civilian elite in Constantinople. This is a source of instability, right? There's, this is creating Definitely. instability in the whole in the system. Definitely, Definitely. creating instability. Because both cliques were trying to benefit from the income coming from the state to increase their own standing and further their own interests. It doesn't mean that the provincial military elite was like nationalist country, you know, lovers of their own country, like defending the so-called nation which didn't exist uh, against the foreign enemies and infidels. Uh, so it's like an attempt to share the state, to divide the state resources among themselves. Uh, and it results, in, as, as you said, in a kind of a, like a chaotic situation. At a time when there were new enemies on the horizon, actually from three corners, there were the Pechenegs coming from the north, Steppe people uh, coming from today's like southern Russia and Crimea, uh, attacking the empire from the Balkan frontier. There were the Normans who had come to Italy around the year 1000 as mercenaries, but conquered Sicily in the 11th century and now posed a threat to the Byzantine territories in the Balkans under Robert Giscard and Bohemond. They also attacked from today's Albania into the uh, interior Balkans. And finally, maybe the most important threat came from this east and southeast from the Near East, because some of the August Turks, August Turks who had lived in today's Western Central Asia, had entered the Near Eastern territories, started converting to Islam, and under the dynasty of the Seljuks, they had conquered Buyid, Buwayid, Iraq, and Hamdanet, Syria, and parts of Caucasia. So uh, either central forces of the Seljuk state or peripheral, marginal, nomadic forces who occupied the, the frontiers of the Seljuk state started attacking Asia Minor. Uh, so went through the Armenian principalities or former Armenian, now Byzantine territories and entered uh, Central Asia Minor and Western Asia Minor. And this confrontation resulted in a total defeat on the Byzantine side in the Mansikat or Malazgirt battle in 1071. So the uh, Romanos Diogenes, the Byzantine emperor, was defeated. And now the Turkish forces, or Seljuk forces, were everywhere in Asia Minor. Every part of today's uh, Turkish territories in Anatolia were, quote-unquote, run over by or conquered by the Turks. I saw um, recently there's some speculation the site of the Battle of Manzikert may have been found by archaeologists. This is it, is, I think, it is a speculation because it's very difficult to find um, the exact site of the confrontation in today's east of Turkey in the uh, Mush region. As you said, there were some attempts supported by the Turkish state, state authorities. Now, they even established actually a park, archaeo park, indicating that this is the... the site. Of course, it's part of the Turkish nationalist discourse, modern Turkish nation building 
uh, discourse because the, in modern Turkey, people are told, are invited to believe that the Turks came to Anatolia in the 11th century and, and those Turks of the 11th century are exactly the same, like, uh, similar to the Turks of the 21st century. So like the national continuity and, and cultural continuity is constructed down to the 11th century. So there, as you see now, the empire in the later 11th century is in shambles, the Byzantine empire. And there were different cliques, different social groups uh, vying with each other for the power. There are many emperor wannabes trying to get the throne. Uh, and economically speaking, uh, in the 11th century, there was a lot of expenditure, even for, uh, according to Byzantine sources, building big palaces and churches, or to defend against the enemies. Therefore, there was a lot of expenditure, which resulted in the devaluation of the coinage, which led to inflation. So it's not only a military, military problem that we have in the 11th century, it is also a financial problem. I'm not saying the economy was in decline. Actually, late 11th and late 12th, 10th and 11th centuries uh, witnessed actually a quite uh, economic boom, a period of economic boom. Population was increasing, cities were developing, and actually in terms of infrastructure and, and industries, Byzantium was much richer than in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries. So the civil society was rich, uh, economy was working well, and exchange was in high levels. But financially and militarily and politically, the centralized big Byzantine state was in danger. So just to cut the story short, because I, uh, you know, a lot of time to explain this, answer, answer this question. Mm -hmm. There came a new dynasty called the Komnenians, who were originally from northwestern Turkey, Paphlagonia. Under the new emperor, Alexios Komnenos, in the very late 11th century, we see a new system a new state. It's not only a new dynasty, it's a new state and a new society. I call these new because the developments of the 10th and 11th centuries, the aristocratization, the increasing power of the provincial elite and families, which, were, which Byzantine authorities tried to stop, were now incorporated to create a stronger Byzantine society. Some modern historians call the Komnenian dynasty a patrimonial aristocratic state. So the Komnenians, themselves being members of the provincial elite, themselves being aristocratically oriented, whatever it means, maybe we need to you know, define what we mean by aristocracy. It's not like you know, uh, later medieval European or French aristocracy. Uh, but still, the Komnenians created a coalition of strong families, Dukai, Komneni, Angeli, and all other families from different parts of the empire who had huge lands and who had a huge much say in the running of the state in the 11th century. So through marriage diplomacy, by intermarrying, Komnenians created an umbrella system, a coalition, where not we don't have any more civilian state officials running the judiciary or the bureaucracy uh, and the taxation and the army, but we have heads of these families, cousins, uncles, who are rich, important members of the provincial aristocracy who now dominate the whole state tool. Of course, they have bureaucrats under them, helping them out because these men are not in the end, you know, specializers in finances uh, or tax collection or judiciary, but governor of Thessaloniki, 
judge of Pontus, the mayor of Constantinople, would be all coming from these families, especially extended communion family, so which acted as a glue to keep the system working. So actually the system, the newfound system, worked well. In the 12th century is a quite a good period, a lucky period for Byzantines, because even though there were so many enemies, the Byzantines were able to defeat them, capture some territories back, and also provided uh, uh, an eventless period for the development of the Byzantine economy and um, society. So 12th century Byzantine and Constantinople is rich, actually richer than 10th and 11th centuries in terms of the material well-being uh, and daily life quality. Thank you very much. A panorama of 11th century Byzantium um, in, 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 in just a few in just a few minutes. And this point you're, you're, you made that the Komnenoi kind of rescue Byzantium and transform it in, in the same, it's the same, it's the same process. It's, I think especially interesting, although we mustn't get too sucks into the 12th century, you're right, you will be, otherwise that's, an, that's a whole other story. Can I just bring you back, you briefly mentioned a couple of times um, the economy, you just finished then talking about the, the economic prosperity. Could you say something more um, about, about trade in the economy in this period? You said it's a, it's a booming period in the 11th. Or it's, it's, yeah. it, it's a booming period, not only for exchange, but also production. For example, we see the uh, ex- explosion of textile industry, and especially silk industry, in Corinth uh, uh, and Thebes and Athens, that is to say in southern Balkan cities, as well as in southern Turkey, today's southern Turkey, like Antalya, Atalia. Uh, we have uh, signs of well-developed silk industry. Uh, so the silk was consumed uh, locally uh, for the local markets, but also the same silk was for uh, sale to foreign markets. Actually, Byzantine silk was so famous by the 10th and 11th centuries that it was, I can liken the success of the Byzantine silk in the national markets to the success of German cars, American cars in the 20th century. It, it, it was the quintessential Byzantine product, other than, of course, many other manufactured items. So even though, for example, the Islamic Near Eastern consumers had a lot of high-quality silk coming from Iran and, and, and Andalusia, and Syria, etc., they still, these consumers still wanted to have Byzantine silk items in the form of garments, cushions, curtains uh, in, the, in, their, in their apartments, in their houses. So uh, likewise, uh, the Byzantine textiles and especially silk was very famous in the West, as you might know. And uh, uh, an Italian ambassador, Louis Prant of Cremona, uh, when he went to Constantinople for a diplomatic uh, mission, he was well treated, at least in one of the missions. And when he was coming back, traveling back to Italy, uh, he wanted to buy some Byzantine textiles from Constantinople. He did. He bought these pieces, but he was stopped at the uh, at Abydos, the Dardanelles in today's uh, Dardanelles Straits, which is like uh, on the way leading from Constantinople to. He was stopped by this Byzantine state officials, and his silk was confiscated, saying that this is a type of a silk that is not allowed to be exported outside the country. And he protested to the officials, saying that everybody in Italy wears these Byzantine silk products, even the you know bad woman, <laughs> you know, in Rome. So, which it shows that you know, uh, even though some of the Byzantine exports uh, were not supposed to be exported. They, they were in the, easily found, uh, readily found 
in Italy or Egypt. A crossing religious and political frontiers. Then, uh, Definitely. Of course, as you might guess, uh, the, the commercial interests didn't recognize any religious or political border. Uh, there were limitations, of course, imposed by the state and sometimes ecclesiastical authorities, but merchants or people living on the frontier found many creative means to bypass these. Just to give you one or two examples, the Catholic authorities const and Byzantine authorities too, constantly warned uh, merchants, whether Italian or Byzantine merchants, uh, about the sale of wood, timber, to the Islamic world, because the Muslim forces in Egypt and the Levant, or Syria, uh, were using these timber to build warships to fight against the Christian forces of the northern Mediterranean. But uh, the Muslims were, did not have any difficulty finding merchants, Italian merchants selling them timber. So uh, also many raiders would easily turn to traders. Both the Byzantine and the Arab-speaking raiders would find every opportunity to sell uh, what the, whatever they raided back into the markets of the raided, either to the same location where they raided or to another neighboring port. Commerce is very open-minded. Commerce is very open-minded when it comes to this. <laughs> it is, stuff. actually. It's very <laughs> commercialized. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. Um, I want to, we, we should move on, Craig, because I have another a, a question for you, which is, there's a group of people we haven't talked about at all yet, and I think we probably ought to mention them, but the Crusaders, um, who obviously appear dramatically from the Latin West, um, dramatically for Byzantium and, of course, for the, the Eastern Mediterranean more generally. Could you say a few words about their impact, what they found? Yes, I would, as a Byzantinist, I would talk uh, from the perspective of Byzantinism because it's such a big subject matter. But uh, as you know, according to historical sources, Crusaders were the first crusade was instigated by a, a letter coming from Alexios Komnenos, in the, again in the later 11th century, uh, as a request against the Turkish forces. So probably Alexios Komnenos had only a few professional uh, soldiers in mind coming from Western Europe, but instead he found in front of himself a deluge of people like, you know, um, civilians, monks and children. As you know, there is the Children's Crusade and Peter's Crusade, and finally, uh, more, more like, uh, you know, a knights, a set of knights crusade in 1096. And most of, the, most of these forces, especially the professional ones, the, the knightly forces, like Robert of Flanders, Raymond of Toulouse, or Robert of Normandy, they kind of scared the Byzantine authorities a lot. Because, as you know, especially in the First and Second Crusade, they were using the land routes from the, through the Balkans, Constantinople, and Anatolia to reach the Holy Land, uh, what they call Holy Land. So Byzantine authorities, Alexios himself, and later emperors were very wary of these rowdy and dangerous crusaders. And there was mutual mistrust from the beginning. The Crusaders were complaining about the unfriendly behavior of the uh, Byzantine authorities uh, and the lack of um, provisions or markets that, that were supposed to be provided by the Byzantines. And the Byzantines were complaining about the Crusaders uh, being barbarian uh, and attacking the Byzantine populations uh, and, uh, instead of buying in the markets. 
And of course, the Byzantine authorities in Constantinople were scared of the possibility of some of the crusaders, especially Norman crusaders, uh, attacking Constantinople and capturing it. So the Byzantines were kind of very careful about how to treat the crusaders and, were, and they were very quick in passing the crusaders from the Balkans to Anatolia to defeat the Seljuk Turks. Get them out of the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, the Crusaders did what they were supposed to do. They defeated the Seljuks and other Turks in Anatolia on their way to the Holy Land. And Alexios and other emperors from the Indian dynasty were able to capture parts of Anatolia, especially the coastal rich parts of Anatolia, the Black Sea, Western Anatolia, and Southern Anatolia. So in a sense, the Crusaders contributed to the Byzantine success in the beginning uh, in Anatolia. But their presence in, let's say, Antioch and the Levant was, a, was seen as a threat in the eyes of the Byzantines, like outsiders occupying important positions. And the Byzantines were not wrong, because as you know, in the Fourth Crusade, uh, in 1204, some of the Crusaders were diverted towards Constantinople, probably by the Venetians, uh, to capture Constantinople. So uh, the Crusaders had a short and long-term effect on the lives of the Byzantines. And the presence of the Crusaders also contributed to the negative view of the Latins in the Byzantine popular mind. The Latins were seen as a threat more and more every decade, every century, because they came as soldiers and conquerors. Also, they came as merchants. Uh, we always focus on the Crusaders uh, when we talk about the Westerners in, in, in Byzantium, but what about the Italians? The Italian merchants, the Venetians, the Amalfitans, later the Genoese, they were started dominating the Mediterranean trade, uh, not only international Mediterranean trade between Italy, Egypt, and Byzantium, but also slowly, especially in the 12th and 13th centuries, Italians started dominating the internal markets of Byzantium. So Italians were receiving privileges from the Byzantine emperors that made them the masters of not only of international trade, but also of the internal Byzantine exchange system. This resulted, these two resulted in the increasing prejudices among the Byzantine populations, leading to pogroms in Constantinople against the Venetians and the Italians in general in the late 12th century. Byzantine, the Comneni, the, the Byzantines were not wrong to see the Crusades as a potential danger. And I mean, yeah, this is another aspect of the divisive legacy of, of the Crusades, I guess. Um, thank you very much, Craig. Um, I have one last question, and this is just a brief question, really. I mean, we are having this conversation. You're in, in Istanbul, I'm in the UK. Um, I wondered about if you could say something. I know you're, you, you've written about this a little bit, about the place of Byzantium in, in modern Turkey. I mean, what do people in modern Turkey think about the, 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 the Byzantine Empire? Yeah, actually, in Turkey, for generations, including this current generation, we, the people in Turkey, have strong opinions about Byzantium, but have little information about it. So we are ignorant about it, totally ignorant, but have strong opinions about it. We are ignorant about it because we are not taught about Byzantine history in school curricula. So in, in, in education, there is almost no reference to Byzantium. Even in the high school, uh, very short references in the form of paragraph or two, uh, instead focusing on the Turkish and Islamic history. And also uh, the state-sponsored museums and exhibitions and projects are more geared towards, obviously, either classical and Hellenistic period projects, but more, of course, Turkish Islamic history, like the Seljuks and the Ottomans, etc. 
So uh, we are ignorant about it. But also we have strong opinions about it because we are taught this way because the Byzantines represent the ancestors of the other, the current other for the Turkish nation. That is to say the Christian and the Greek. As you know, just like the Greek uh, national identity was developed in response to its own other, which is Turks or the Ottomans. Uh, likewise, a Turkish identity, a national identity has been developed in response to a number of other ethnicities among which Greeks occupy a, an important place. So we automatically and simplistically associate in Turkey, in popular culture, Byzantium with anything that is Greek, modern Greek, and with Christian, with the Christian. But I, by the way, please do not think that it is peculiar to Orthodox Christianity and Greek speakers, because in popular TV shows and popular movies and popular novel, novels, novellae, you always have this description of Byzantium as if it was a part and parcel of Western European world. So when you read about these or watch these TV shows or movies, you are confused whether you are looking at Catholic West, Maltese Knights, or Byzantine soldiers. So it's the West, a little bit like anti-imperialist view of the West that colonized the whole world and that tried to colonize the Ottoman Empire and the Turks, but we had the independence war. Therefore, we should be alert and careful about, even in, in our historical consciousness, about this presence of a, a Christian coalition, a Western coalition against Turks. It is very similar to the Russian, if you come to think about it understanding of the West, like a big block from the North to the South, from Orthodox to Catholic, against the Muslim identity. So also we don't want to talk about Byzantium because the more we talk about Byzantium in Turkey, the more we realize that it is actually, they are our ancestors. Like both the land, piece of land that we occupy, we live today in the last 1000 years, Asia Minor, Anatolia, whatever it is, uh, it is full of material evidence linguistic evidence and cultural evidence of the Byzantine period. And of course, one should always think in mind that this Byzantine was not only Byzantine. The Byzantine legacy of Asia Minor also went back to Hellenistic, Anatolian, Iron Age, and Bronze Age Anatolia, from Hittites to Lydians to Rartians and the Cappadocians, etc. So it's like a you know, motley, a hodgepodge of cultures that became more Greek-speaking and Christian in the 11th century, and then very slowly transformed into a predominantly Muslim, predominantly uh, Turkish-speaking environment, which culminated only in the 20th century with the final population exchange with the Greeks between Turkish state and Greek state. So mi millions of Greeks moving to mm -hmm. Greece and, and hundreds of thousands of Muslims, Turkish-speaking people moving from Greece to Turkey. So uh, therefore, we, we, we know a lot about, we, we think we know a lot about a culture that, about which we know nothing. I think strong opinions and, and, and not much information is a situation to be found in many places, not, not just not just in Definitely a post-truth age. <laughs> um, we should leave it there, Corey, but thank you very much for your time and for, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for your questions.